Welcome to the REI Mastermind Network, where host Jack Haas gathers amazing stories from leaders in real estate investing. In each episode, our guests will tell you what they're doing that works, what they've tried that failed, and best of all, you'll learn actionable steps to take your real estate investing to the next level. Now, here's Jack with another value-packed episode. We have Joel Friedland with me here, and you can find him and what his team are up to at BritProperties.com. I'm going to make sure to have that link in the show notes because it is Brit with one T. Got to call that out. So, Joel, thanks for your time here today. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me on the show. So we're going to be talking about industrial real estate. And before we jump into that, a lot of people, when they hear industrial, they're probably thinking commercial. So is there a correlation there or so we, should we break a myth there right now? There is very little correlation there. Uh, you know, I, I do this when people say commercial, we're, we're not commercial. We're industrial. It's a, an asset class of its own. Industrial is where manufacturing and distribution takes place and it doesn't matter with an industrial building if it's on a main street, if it's got any identity. Industrial's usually behind other things. So it's very different than commercial. It's not office buildings. It's not retail buildings. It's got truck docks and a bunch of people working in there making or packaging things. You recently mentioned that you, you were in Fargo not too long ago for this exact purpose. And it, it was interesting to hear you must be all over the country for this. Yeah, actually, we have an organization that I belong to called the Society of Industrial and Office Realtors. And it's a few thousand brokers and property owners that are involved in industrial and office. Mostly it's industrial. It used to be called SIR, which is Society of Industrial Realtors. And Whenever I need something in a particular city, I can pick up the phone and call the most experienced spoken person in that market who understands the industrial market. I actually, when I came to Fargo, it was for a Chicago-based, Chicago's where I live and where our portfolio is, a Chicago-based company that I'm close with bought a company in Fargo that makes wood chippers. And the owner of the business owned the building and was leasing it to my friend in Chicago because they had bought the company. And it was called Echo, actually. Echo makes all kinds of landscaping and farm implement. And they said, we need you to go to, because the guy who we bought the business from is renting us this building. We just want to make sure he's being fair and he's not charging us 25 or 30% more than what we should be paying. So my wife and I were in Northern Wisconsin visiting our kids at summer camp. And we took a ride and came to Fargo and had the greatest day and night there. First of all, I drove all over the industrial parts. You've got great industrial. You've got a ton of it. And I was shocked to see how much there is. And we had a great time. We wandered around town. We had dinner and then we stumbled into this concert of Mark Cohn. The guy, you and I talked about this, the guy who does that song, what's it called? Something in Memphis. Walking in Memphis, which is on the radio all the time. So mm -hmm. that's my memory of a great evening in Fargo. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize how much industrial property we have here and customer service as well. It's, it's, just, it's actually pretty crazy. I love it there. 
So I, I'm just curious, how did you find your way to this niche? Like you must have kind of a story to, to find your way to industrial. I, I haven't run into a lot of people that specialize in this. Yeah, I, I was graduating from the University of Michigan and I knew that I wanted to be in real estate. I, from a, a background of being in the landscaping business, I enjoyed watching the real estate goings on as I was cutting people's lawns and chopping down their bushes. And I said, boy, these realtors are just great. Look what they're doing. I'm doing this hard labor and they're just walking around, showing it to people, smiling, shaking hands. So I decided I wanted to be in real estate. And when I graduated, a friend told me that he knew someone looking for a property manager. So I called this guy who was at the time, the same age I am now, he was 63 and his name was Milt Podolsky. And I cold called him. And I said, Milt, I want to be in real estate. And he says, hey, kid, I'm looking for someone to do property management of industrial property. And I thought, what the hell is that? So I jumped in my car and I went and interviewed with Milt and his sons that day. And after the meeting, they said, this guy doesn't belong in management. He's a sales guy. He went door to door, cold calling, getting people to hire him to cut lawns when he was 14. And he grew the business and he had 50 kids working for him. He's not a property manager. He's a broker. So they hired me to be a broker. And I was their agent in 1981. Interest rates were 17%. Businesses were just scared to death. People weren't moving because the cost of moving could put them out of business. So they were just hanging on trying to stay in business. And Milt and his kids had these 84 buildings and they had 10 vacancies and they said, your job is to fill them up. So I went cold calling on their behalf, door to door in industrial parks. And I literally filled up in the first year, nine of the 10 vacancies. We had one that was stubborn. We couldn't lease it. It was a huge building. It was 330,000 square feet on the South side of town. And it had been vacant for literally two years. And we all struggled with it. So I learned a lot of lessons from that first year. I worked for them for 10 years. And eventually I went to Milt and his son, Steve. The son, Steve, is, is like a, a genius. The guy is, he's been my mentor since 1981. He's still my partner. He's still my close friend. Even though I left them and went and started my own company 10 years after work, starting working for them. But I went to them in the ninth year, right before, before the Gulf War. And I said, I want to start syndicating and developing. Will you help me? And they agreed to put up a lot of the money if I would syndicate a deal, as long as I brought in the rest of the money aside from their part. And if I found the property and if I put everything together, that they would help. And they did. And we did it again. And we did it again. And then I said to them, guys, I want to be your partner. And they said, we can give you 5% of our business. It's a family business, but that's it. And I said, listen, I love you guys, but I'm not a 5% of the business kind of guy. I, I really, I need more. So on very good terms, I left and I started my own brokerage and syndication company doing exactly the same thing, which was industrial syndication and industrial leasing and industrial sales. That's really interesting. So a couple of things that you brought up there that I'd like to chat a little bit about is that, first of all, it, it sounds like you early on found and value the concept of mentorship 
what would you say to people listening regarding just that as a category? I think mentorship is the most important thing in a person's career, higher than any other aspect of what makes somebody successful. I, I believe if you find somebody who's great at what they do and you can convince them to take you under their wing and teach you their business, that eventually you'll become that person. So as high as you go in the food chain in terms of who your mentor is, that's about as high as, as a person can go because that's what they learned. You watch uh, a lot of golf or tennis or whatever. Athletes beget athletes. Real estate people beget real estate people. And someone who's in a family business has a huge advantage because the dad or the brother or whatever teaches them the business and they don't have to find someone to be the mentor. It's the dinner table talk from the time they were young kids. And then they enter the business and they've already got a great knowledge. And then the parent takes them under their wing and teaches it to them. I think I found somebody who treated me like family and I felt like they were family. And that mentorship, I literally have become Milt Podolsky. He was 63. I'm 64 now. And I've become him. So I believe in that. I think if if someone doesn't have good mentorship, they're going to struggle. They're going to make a lot of mistakes that could be avoided. And it's the whole concept of being around like-minded individuals and you're the sum of the five people you hang out with the most. You got to make sure that a mentor is part of that. I can't echo what you said enough. And it has to be someone who's not threatened by you. It has to be someone who says, this person that I'm mentoring could theoretically be my succession plan. This person could be the person that takes over for me when I get older or when I'm ready to sell out and I need someone to run the business, but I want to go spend more time in Florida or in California or whatever. So that's what Mill did. He, he spent a lot of time in Florida while those of us working for him did what he taught us how to do. But really, I was very lucky that his son, Steve, was so great. Steve would read a lease and there would be more marked up red N, the, the comments and critiques of a lease when we would do a lease. He taught me from the first page to the 15th page, everything about a lease and how to pay attention to details and everything about roofs and about driveways. It was such a great experience to have someone that knowledgeable. Being as young as you were and got into that business, where did you find that there were any mindset things that you had to break through? I know it, it helped to have be essentially part of this family, but was there ever any conflict internally as you were trying to adapt to this new scenario? Yes. I'm going to get into the subject of partnership a little bit. There's always going to be personality conflicts when there are five people. You talked about the five people. Yeah. The problem is when you go to work for a company, the chances that all of the people that you work with or for, that you're going to get along with them all is slim. And so I think a lot of it has to do with mental mindset and tolerance of people. That's really where the challenges were. If it wasn't for the people, everything would be easy. <laughs> That's the big problem that we all have. And I love my investors. I love my tenants. But every so often I run into someone who's a problem and I've seen more family businesses with more strife. The, 
the brothers don't talk to each other. The father doesn't talk to the son. The sister is out in left field and everybody hates her. That's what I've seen is, is the biggest pain point of almost anything. I've got 250 investors, and I would say that at least half of them have family conflicts because they were in family businesses and there was some resentment that came up. The real estate part um, is really challenging also because we have to make good decisions and buy properties that make sense. We can't do bad deals. Hmm. But the, the biggest issue is when you're fighting with someone who's your partner, it's hard to recover. It's hard to make the business work because it, it's what we see right now in, in the, this country where you see that there's all this divisive stuff going on between factions and nothing gets done. How do you figure out how to get things done? So that's been the problem that I've seen. And when I went and started my business, I had five partners. We started out as a group. And over the years, I had some conflicts, unfortunately, with two of them. And it just, it ruins it. It, it, Every rock group breaks up. Not everyone. The Rolling Stones are still together. But if you look at your favorite music, where there were two members of a group or three or four or five, eventually they break up and it's all egos. Everybody wants to be in charge. So what I've learned is... The key to the whole thing is tolerance. It's accepting people for who they are and not trying to change them. And hopefully having the people in your life not trying to change you. It's a lot of acceptance. So I'm very, at my age and at my stage in the game, I'm very much interested in kind of the personal development side of the business because the real estate part I've been doing for 43 years, I get that. We still make mistakes. We have good deals. We have a few bad deals. I don't like the conflicts and I try to avoid them. There's a great book. It's called The Four Agreements. And I recommend mm-hmm. that anybody who hasn't read it should read it. It's a one and a half hour read. And it talks about saying good things about people, not saying anything bad about anybody, and not making any assumptions and not taking anything personally and doing your best. And I try to live by that as best I can. I know when I make a mistake, I know when I've made an assumption, I think I assume something when you assume you make a mistake when you assume something because you're assuming it and it's usually wrong. One of the things I've learned that I think you may not have ever heard of is trying to do your best by being so transparent and honest that it could be to a fault. Because selling requires taking a leap, some exaggeration, some optimism. And, and I start, when I talk to new investors, for example, with the fact that in 2008, we got into such trouble. I've heard this on, from other people on your podcast when I've, I've watched your podcast. 2008 was a killer for so many people. And I start with, in 2008, I went into a depression because I thought I lost all my investors' money and it was a disaster and it was hard to come out and I had to get counseling and I had to get medication and it was awful. And I start with that. And then I jump to, and because of that, I have this mindset, which is different than most people in real estate, which is I do my deals, all cash, no mortgages, no debt. Why? Because 
there's a certain group of people who are comfortable with that. And I believe that what I learned in 2008 is that banks have no sense of humor. And I'm just going down a different path. It's just a different path. And most people think I'm an idiot. They say, hey, come on, real estate's a leverage business. How can you do it with no leverage? How does that work? And the answer is for a group of investors who don't want to lose money and who are conservative, preservation of capital is number one for them. And having some amount of their money in an all cash, no debt deal helps them sleep better at night. Mm-hmm. That's, that is very interesting. In fact, you're right. I haven't run into, I'm closing in on 500 episodes. I don't think I run into anybody with that mindset and, and business model that you just laid out. Yeah. I called Steve Podolsky, who has been my mentor for 43 years, about four years ago. And I said, I'm going to do all my deals, all cash. He said, you can't do that. I said, Steve, give me six months to prove to you that I can go out and get dozens and dozens of new investors and some of our old ones to do deals with us where there's no mortgage. The return's going to be lower because you can't goose up your IRRs that way because there's no leverage. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a market for it. It may only be 5% of all the people who invest in real estate, but 5% of 50 million people is still hundreds of thousands of people. And all we need to do is find a few of them and we can do all cash deals and sleep well at night. So he said, yeah, why don't you go try it and see if it works? Cause I don't think it's going to work. And we did and it worked, but I can tell you that at least two thirds of the people I talked to tell me up front that they don't agree with it and probably won't invest in it. But after talking it through for a half hour, very often they say, okay, I'll try this. And then I tell them, but don't put a lot in this. You, you need to make money on, on, a, on an accelerated basis in a way where you can really grow your assets, taking more risk than this. This is your low risk alternative where I'm going to try to get you eight to 9% returns over a 10 year period as a yield where the cash flow will come in at two, two and a half percent per quarter. That's our goal. And Yeah, we might make a profit when we sell it in 10 or 12 years, but it's a long-term hold for the purpose of not losing money and for getting cash flow. And and it resonates with some people, but not everybody. Just to remind everybody, if this is resonating with you, head over to BritProperties.com. Like I said, I'm going to have that link in the show notes. And if you found some value in what Joel has been bringing up here so far, do us a quick favor and share it with one of your investor friends. So, Joel, you brought this up, so I've got to explore it a little bit. Have you seen any similarities with the current economy that you did in 2008 or even when you were younger in this real estate game and when you saw interest rates at 17%? Yeah, it feels very 2000s right now. I'm being very cautious about what we buy and what we say no to. I don't know if the market is gonna it's like a balloon that's gonna pop or if it's gonna be a slow leak and as as they say a a soft landing um i don't know i just i listen to a lot of economists on podcasts and they all disagree with each other i get Mm -hmm. a shake at a real answer at the university of michigan i go to an economics class in the morning and the professor would have one position in the afternoon someone who was 
also brilliant and respected would have the opposite opinion about what was happening. So I don't know, but I'm very cautious right now. Cautionary tale, having been through 2007. And by the way, when I went into that depression, when I had all these investors, I had 50 buildings, I had 200 and something investors. I worked really hard to get through that emotional wreckage and save the portfolio and not have very many deals that went back to lenders. But it was a fight because the workout to people, the workout people at banks are not friendly. They come mm -hmm. at you when, when there's a problem, they come at you. Their job is to push hard and to really show no mercy. They generally are not, they're not our friends when things go bad. Reasons why it's really nice to not have any lenders. Was there anything that you did in particular that stands out and to shore things up and help you get through that time? Great communication with the investors was really important, telling them what the struggles were so that they could understand it. And also just working very hard to keep the buildings leased, uh, to collect rent from tenants who were struggling and push them to pay as much as they could. Really just, it wasn't nine to five. It was eight to eight. It was 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. at that time just to keep everything going. It was like having 50 plates spinning and trying to keep all the plates spinning at the same time. It was horrible. Just one of the, I got to point out, one of the first answer you gave me there is great communication. And that actually is sadly the opposite of what somebody would typically do. I have tenants that I'm dealing with now that are late on their rent or whatever. It's more of put your head in the sand hide like an ostrich and hope that it just blows over, but it just actually makes things worse. Yeah. I have a habit. Uh, it's one of my forever habits is I talk to at least 15 of my investors personally on the phone every week. It's an average of three, three a day during weekdays and some on weekends. And I just like to touch base. I just like to let them know what's happening. And I started that in 2008. When things were bad, I knew that when they heard from me, they had more trust that I was working on their behalf and not running away. Hmm. And by the way, one of the people that I was fighting with, one of my partners, wanted to put everything into bankruptcy and start over again. That was a huge problem. That's where the fight came in is every time we had a refinance, he'd say, let's just give it back to the bank. Why are we fighting? And my answer was because we have all these investors and they trusted us and we need to come through for them. And we did. But that made it more complicated. So you talked about uh, partnerships a couple times. Are there some big lessons that you've learned now before getting into a partnership? What are some of those things that people should be cautious of or what type of questions should they ask? Boy, it's like a marriage. Why, why do you marry somebody and get the worst? It's, you trust them and you believe in them and you think it's going to work. And you don't really see the side of a person that, they don't show you. Everybody puts their best foot forward in the beginning. So what I have learned is that the best way to become partners with someone is to do deals with them over a period of time without becoming 50-50 partners to just work together and see how what their attitude is and what they do and how much they contribute and let them see how much I contribute. I met with a really nice young man for lunch the other day, and I don't know if he wants to be an industrial. I don't think he does, but he was in 
residential and he moved here to Chicago from LA. And I said, and I didn't say to him, I'm testing you, but I said, if you might want to get together, why don't we do some projects? I'll throw some projects at you. And why don't we work on some things together? And I threw five projects out, which are buildings we're trying to buy, where you would do the analysis and take a look at them. And uh, he may or may not do that work. He may not be interested. I don't know if he likes me or if he trusts me or I, I don't know what's going to happen, but that testing of somebody up front is really important and it's still not enough. That's the best way for me now to get into a new relationship with a new partner. Yeah. One of the taglines. Do you have partners in what you're doing now? Oh yeah. Yeah. Everybody. Get and, and the one thing that I keep saying over and over again, and, and I'm sure people are tired of hearing it is that you either start with an awkward conversation or it will end with one. <laughs> That's so true. How many of the people you've dealt with have you had conflicts or problems with over the period of time that you've been doing this? Oh, I would say a dozen, depending on the scenario. It's painful, isn't it? It is. And it, it, it it's a lot easier to deal with things when you go into a partnership and lay out the rules. When everybody knows you're on the same, oh, these are, it's just like you're playing a game of Monopoly. You, you all have to abide by these rules. This is how we do things. Yeah. And once everybody understands the rules, things go a little smoother. Yeah. But sometimes someone wants to change the rules. It's often when someone comes up as a trainee and they, then they're doing it long enough that they become proficient and they want to become your equal or your boss. Maybe they're more of a control freak than you are. Uh, or vice versa. I use the analogy of great jazz musicians. Uh, A lot of, you might listen to Miles Davis, Bitches Brew is an awesome album, but he went from the very beginning and you have to learn the notes and you have to learn your scales and you have to learn theory and you have to do, you, you go through a process there before you can improvise to the level of a Miles Davis. Yeah. Music's a great metaphor. Sports and music are great metaphors for what we do. Are you, are, what, what kind of debt do you like to do on your deals? Yeah, it varies. But right now we are strictly doing what you're, you're suggesting. We've been, because of the market change, we had been doing, we're doing a lot of fix and flips right now, but we've shifted down market. So we're focused a bit more on that things that we would classify as first time home buyers, because those people that were mid market or higher, they are still looking at the, at a certain monthly payment, right? So now they're moving down the, the, with their purchasing power, but thankfully our strategy has been working because we've, we buy these houses. We just put one on the market. We had gotten four offers within 24 hours still. Um, in the last situation. And it was just because of that where we adjusted in this situation, we had bought and rehabbed the, the house with cash, just like you are. We're sticking with the cash scenario as well at the moment. Yeah, that's great. I love that, that you're doing it that way. We, we have a problem that's different than yours. Industrial is just very, it's the properties are big. We don't have, we, we do B and C industrial, which is smaller and older buildings in the Chicago area only. We're hyper-focused just on 
the buildings that we know. There's 8,000 freestanding single-tenant buildings in the Chicago area. I've cold called 7,000 of them over the years. So I, I know the markets really well. But it doesn't uh, prevent you from having the number one risk, which is vacancy. And the number two risk is vacancy. And the number three risk is vacancy. An industrial tenant that manufactures a product uh, moves into your building. And if they manufacture, they're not going to move out anytime soon because they have employees and machines that don't move easily. Hmm. But the rent that we get for 30,000 foot industrial building is $250,000 a year, plus the tenant pays taxes, insurance, maintenance, and utilities. So when you look at what they're paying out of pocket, it's like $350,000 a year for a building like that, which is different than a house. And so we have this different risk that than people who have smaller deals. And so we have to be super cautious with the type of buildings we buy, the type of tenants that we accept, and what we tell our investors and why we don't do debt. Because can you imagine having debt on a building where the tenant moves out and the cost or the opportunity cost is $30,000 a month for one mm-hmm. building? Yeah. So we have to be very cautious on that. And, I, and we do flip occasionally also, but it's all accidental. We buy a building and someone sees it and says, how, how did you find that building before I did? I was looking for buildings. And the answer is we comb the markets for buildings by cold calling and work with brokers. There's 300 industrial brokers in Chicago. And I just sent them all a letter today saying, hey, we're looking for buildings. We're just very aggressive marketers to find deals. Mm-hmm. We have to be because we only buy one out of every 25 or 30 that we look at. So right. it's complicated and, and the vacancy in our business is really risky. And that's why the, the all cash is so much more comfortable to me. Can you imagine having 50 buildings and having 10 vacancies and having 3 million a year that you're not getting in rent that you would have needed to make your payments to the bank and to the, for the taxes. That's what yeah. happened. It's what happened to us in 2008. Mm-hmm. So super caution is what I believe in. And it sounds like you're on my page same way. Yeah. Just on a smaller scale regarding what we do. Yeah. Yeah. We've been holding things too, because we've been, we have some rental property as well, but it's, we just holding steady at the moment just to see what's going to happen. Yeah. I think that's smart. I'd be curious before we move into a rapid fire. I, I think you're aware of the rapid fire questions that'll come at the end here, but out of a lot of the people that I talk to, you seem to be very thoughtful in your decision-making. Do you have a process or something associated with that? That I, I foresee that you you possibly have a process in order to make some major decisions. I do. I have a three-part process. The first one is a mindset, which is, I call it WAIT, W-A-I-T. And it stands for, why am I talking? And so I used to make snap judgments. I'd be really impulsive. I had to be like the big shot who can make a quick answer on the spot for somebody. But instead it's, wait, let me get back to you on that. So first of all, it's, I need to get back to you. And then the process behind the scenes after I, I don't jump in without looking is I have an eight person advisory board made up of some of my larger investors, Steve Podolsky 
is one of them. He's an investor after training me 43 years ago and coming back together. I don't make a move without him or the other seven members of that advisory group. I often get seven of them on the phone and then have to make one additional call. And I run it. I run everything by these people and they're smart, they're cautious, and it's their money. So that's part of it. And then I journal. I don't know if you do any journaling, but I have this journal. And when I write stuff down, I really take my time thinking it through, looking at it after I write it up and then looking at it again the next day and saying, do I still think yesterday's decision was smarter or am I looking at it a different way? So that's my process. Thoughtfulness is the answer to not being stupid. That's interesting because I've started, I I shouldn't say started. I've been doing this for quite a while now because there was a point in time where I I felt like I had to give everybody an answer right away. And more times than not, they don't need it right away. And it's okay to sleep on it. Or um, there's many times where I'll even write, an, as simple as it sounds, write an email in the heat of the moment, and then I'll just leave it in my draft folder and then reread it the next morning. And it'll change a lot by then. <laughs> Before I send it out, I don't have to react to the situation at that time. The W-A-I-T, why am I talking, also applies to why am I texting. And I don't send texts with my opinions about anything. And when I say opinions, I don't get angry at people and send angry texts. I don't say, I, I don't go after them on a text or on a call. It's the same thing. Let's not burn any bridges. Burning bridges, when I was younger, I was aggressive, man. I was really aggressive. If you talk to some of the Chicago brokers who are old timers here, who know me now and knew me then, they're going to say he was the most aggressive motherfucker in the entire business. (laughs) And you never knew what you were going to get. And then after all this time, I think maybe it's maturity. Maybe it's just experience. Those same people will tell you today, this guy's a different guy. And it's funny because there may be a few who I dealt with many years ago who are still in the business who I don't know that well. They may still have the opinion that I answer fast and I'm impulsive and all that kind of stuff. But that's just not true anymore. Sure, It's been interesting to hear your journey as you've been progressing through all of this. It, and I really appreciate your time. This We could probably spend a whole episode. And I hope you'll consider coming back because I'd love to understand how you actually underwrite these opportunities. Sure. That probably would take an entire episode. Maybe we'll have to tease that as a future episode. I can tell you in 30 seconds that if we buy a building for $3 million with no debt, we have to get an 8% return for our investors. So I need $240,000 a year of net operating income. Plus there are expenses. So I need another 20,000 a year to cover expenses. So that's the answer. Our pro formas are one page. They oh, are. So well, it's yeah, easier it's, than I'm making it out. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cause when you don't have debt and you don't have all these different scenarios, it's one page. This is what the rent's going to be based on who the tenant is. And if it goes vacant, we'll have some downtime. So yeah, I'd love to get into that with you at some point, but the simpler, the better. And when, Investors look at my private placement memorandum, they'll look at it and they'll say, I've never seen anything this simple. It's one page, one page for projections. And people could even go to your website right now. I, you, it sounded like you were looking to raise capital for a new opportunity. 
we have one eight percent deal that we're raising money for right now. Minimum fifty thousand dollar chunks. Our average investor puts in a hundred thousand per deal, and yeah, so we're coming to the end of that one. We just have a little bit left of it. So just to remind everybody, you can find that at Britcom with one T for Brit. I'll make sure to have that link in the show notes so it'll be clickable and easy to find. But Joel, if you're ready, we'll jump into some rapid fire. Let's do it. Is there a real estate investing myth you'd like to bust here today? Yeah. The myth is that real estate investors make decisions rationally. Most (laughs) don't. Most make them with mood rather than math. And it's more gambling than it is investing. I can, I can attest to that. I've seen that a lot, actually. What book would you recommend? Or did you, would you go with the one you recommended earlier? I love the e-myth. Speaking of myths, it's a book by Gerber and it talks about how some people start a business because they think that they're going to be entrepreneurs and they figure out after a while, business owns them instead of them owning the business. And it talks about how you can make the business work for you so that you have more freedom to make the bigger decisions and most people don't know how to do that. They're control freaks. I love the e-myth. It's great. Okay, great. What is one tool you can't live without, whether it's personal or business? My wife. I used to. She's not a, she's not a <laughs> She tool. might call you a tool, but no. I used to do my deals and run my business without talking to her or asking her. And what I found out is that when I'm sneaking around which is really what it is. When you're in a marriage, it's an economy. It's the economy of your family. And a lot of people who are real estate folks make deals and don't inform. Not only that, they don't consult with their real partner who is their spouse. And until 2008, my wife didn't know anything about my business. And now whenever I have a major decision to make, I go to her and I say, I need you. This is one of those times I need you to close the door of your office we have, we each have our own offices in the house and I go to her office. She closes the door and I say, here's the situation. Here's what I'm struggling with. This, these are the decisions I have to make. And I want to make sure you fully understand them. And then I get her opinion as opposed to telling her I did it after it was done or not telling her at all. So that is, I don't, it's not a, it's not a tool. It's a requirement. If you could go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would that be? Oh man, if I could start over at age eight, knowing what I knew at age 58, it would be stop taking so much risk that you don't acknowledge as risk. It's, it's assessing risk better. And I, I think I do that so much better now than I ever did. It, it takes a long time to grow up in, in business and to look at yourself honestly with self-awareness. That's the hardest part. I'm going to time you on this one. You get 60 seconds and you're going to give everybody one piece of advice that they can implement in their business today. What would it be? Delegate the things that other people are better at and don't be a control freak trying to do everything yourself. That to me, I've learned that lesson over and over. I forget to call my lawyer to ask them. I forget to call my accountant to ask them. I don't call one of the employees and I, I, I do something without telling somebody like the controller and it always causes trouble later. If you think it's that part of that book we talked about, 
the four agreements. If you make an assumption and you don't talk to the experts to get the answers, you will pay later. Yeah, it's one of those things that I'm still working on. You just f- feel like you you have the answers and it's just hard to let certain things go. It is. When you know darn you, there's people in your life that could do a better job. You forget. You forget to call somebody who you should call. Well, Joel, is there a thought or question that you wished we would have covered here tonight? I think you've done a great job and I enjoy your podcast. I think you do a really nice job with your guests. I appreciate hearing that. Again, it is BritProperty.com. I can't thank you enough, Joel, and I hope you'll consider coming back again. Yeah, I'd love to. Have you learned at least one actionable step to incorporate into your real estate investing? If so, please consider returning some of that value by leaving a positive review, subscribing to our YouTube channel, or joining our growing network on Facebook and Twitter. You can find links to all of our social media accounts in the show notes. See you next time.